This episode of The Homilist is brought to you by Ozark Christian College. Ozark Christian College in Joplin, Missouri has been focused on the same mission for over 75 years, to train men and women for Christian service. Ozark's Bible Foundation, Christian Community, Global Outreach, and Affordable Cost prepare students to serve in whatever kingdom assignment God has for them. With residential and online degrees, Ozark sends out workers into the harvest field. With 15,000 alumni serving in all 50 states and in 100 countries around the world. Ozark is also glad to offer next-level resources, free videos and webinars for you and your church, led by Ozark professors like Michael DeFazio, Shane J. Wood, and Mark Scott. Next-level resources cover topics like how to read your Bible, the parables of Jesus, and exploring the Enneagram, and much more. Find next-level resources at no cost at occ.edu forward slash next level. And find out more about Ozark Christian College at occ.edu. What's going on? I'm glad you're back for another episode. Today I'm talking with the teaching pastor of Christ Church of the Valley in Phoenix, Arizona, Dr. Mark Moore. Mark was a professor at mine at Ozark Christian College. He's written several wonderful books, but his most recent work is a book called Core 52, a 15-minute daily guide to build your Bible IQ in a year. Mark is an excellent Bible teacher and an inspirational homiletician. Mark Moore, welcome to the Homilist Podcast. Well, thank you, Jared. Yeah, I'm so glad you could join us. You uh, you got some exciting stuff going on these days. A little bit, yeah. It's uh, unbelievable to watch what the Lord's doing. I, I, you know, I promise you, I'm not that good. It's just <laughs> His work in us is extraordinary. So you've got a book coming out. Yeah, Core 52. It's uh, it. I actually really like this concept, Jared. It's not its not like some of the work I did at Ozark. You, know, you dive deep, you get into the historical background. In the world I'm in now, uh, here at Christ Church of the Valley, Phoenix, Arizona, we are averaging about 35,000 people on a weekend. As you can imagine, a lot of those people, they don't have a biblical background. They just want to know, okay, what's God saying to me today? This, it's, this is survival technique. So how do you get someone who's pretty intelligent, maybe successful in business, uh, how do you get them into the Bible when their time is so thin? So I actually approached it backwards, assuming that people want to get in the Bible. And the, I don't want to just you know run on a monologue here, but there was a major study done here in the Valley in Phoenix, Arizona. Hundreds of thousands of people were uh, interviewed and they, they were asked different questions like, what's your life like? Do you, do you want to know the Bible? How much do the Bible do you know? 60% of those who want to know the Bible don't go to any church. So people aren't, people aren't opposed to Jesus. They're not opposed to the Bible. Some are opposed to the church. So how do we help people on-ramp into the Word of God? And what we discovered is, well, a couple of extraordinary things. If, if someone reads the Bible four days a week or more, it's called Bible-engaged. They're Bible-engaged the stats of their life drop about 60%. So about 60% use of pornography less, about 60% less drunkenness, 60% less uh, immorality. And you know the list, the list can go on. But what we're learning is the Bible isn't just an interesting literary phenomenon in our culture. It actually does make people's lives better. So I've got I mean, a, couple, a couple of things going on. One is people want to know the Bible better because they know that knowing the Bible better will make them better, but they're not doing it. So why? 
And you know as well as I do, our listeners know, the reason people don't get into the Bible is there's really only two reasons. It's too big, so I don't know where to start. It's too old, so I get lost along the way. Instead of trying to convince people to know the Bible, which they already want to do, like we're barking up the wrong tree. What if we just remove the barriers to take a big book and make it manageable and then take an old book and make it relevant? That's core 52 in a nutshell. Wow. So what inspired this whole thing? Was it was it the ministry that you've been in the last few years? Yeah, it was actually a conversation with one of our executive pastors who were going, you know, we've, we've got to get people into the Bible. But around here, knowing theology is not I want to say this carefully because some people aren't going to understand or maybe take offense to this. Knowing the Bible doesn't make you better. It's applying the Bible that makes you better. And we have, for years in the evangelical church, we have evaluated our own spirituality based upon like how many verses you have memorized or how often you go to church or how, what kind of flowery words you can use when you pray. That has little value in my, in my current environment. What the value in the current environment is, can you make it applicable? So as, as I've said, we've got a ton of businessmen, businesswomen who are very successful. They don't need a long sermon or they don't need four years of Bible college. They just need, okay, what do I do now? It's called executive level training. And every executive that makes sense to them. Can we give a deep biblical thought in an executive level training with some practical application points? So to, to circle back around, there is an old principle called the Pareto principle, where this Italian geneticist noticed that uh, that 80% of the pro pro productivity of his garden came from 20% of the seeds. You can apply that to football. 80% of the points are from 20% of the plays. Okay. You can apply it to a, a test that you take in college. 80% of your grade is based on 20% of the material you consumed. Why don't we apply that to the Bible? You don't have to know the whole Bible, but if you can identify the powerful pivot passages, give, give people access to those individual passages, knowing one verse will actually open up dozens mm. or hundreds to you if you just open up that window. So I've identified, look, there's a whole lot more than 52 verses sure. that are important, but these 52 have the greatest, in my estimation, the greatest ROI, return on investment, of all the verses that you, that you could learn. So I just tried to say, okay, here's the most important stuff, know this stuff, and then open the door for people, because they're smart enough to figure it out on their own. Mm. Can you give me an example of, of one of those one of those passages that just is key, is pivotal? Yeah, so uh, one, of my, one of my favorites is actually when we talk about Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not uh, walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, sit in the seat of scoffers. So we, we look at the first three verses on that one. W one of the things I discovered about happiness, Jared, is that when people say there's a difference between happiness and joy, happiness is permanent, or, or happy, happiness is temporary, joy is permanent. Your brain does not know that. The biological fact is there are three chemicals in your brain that you get a short squirt of serotonin, oxytocin, and dopamine. Those are the happiness chemicals. 
Uh, serotonin is the happiness chemical of significance. Dopamine is the happiness chemical when you discover something, some adventure or some adrenaline. Oxytocin is the comfort of a hug or a handshake. That's how biology works. And if I could ramble for a moment. Sure. God is genius in making us addicted to these three chemicals. And in our, they are highly addictive, but they only come in short squirts. It takes very little to get a squirt of dopamine. And then it wears off fairly quickly. Why is that wise? Because with that construct, God is going to make you addicted to simple habits that you have to replicate over and over and over again to get the rush that makes you happy. Now, here's what here's what I noticed out of Psalm 1, 1 through 3. We all want to be happy. Call it joy. Call it happiness. Your brain doesn't know any different. You're addicted to happiness. God designed you to be happy, but happy through repetitious habits in the micro moments of your life. It's absolutely genius. Now, as I, as I studied the science of happiness, then I read the scripture on Psalm 1, 1 through 3. Guess what Psalm 1, 1 through 3 talks about? It talks about your friendships. It talks about your discovery in God's word. And it, it talks about the significance that you have being fruitful and productive like a tree planted by streams of water. <laughs> Boom, mind blown. Yep. Because God designed his word to give you the tools you need for the happiness that you desire. Hmm. And so there's just one passage. So now, when you understand how happiness works, you can begin seeing happiness in all kinds of other passages. Philippians chapter 4, think on these things. Or the Beatitudes of Matthew, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those uh, who weep, the relational side. Yeah. You get the one, you get the one concept and suddenly you are empowered to read all through the Bible to pick up on that one biblical theme. <clears throat> now, this is what strikes me about that whole idea. When it comes to the diminishing returns of a typical addiction, specifically dopamine and how neural pathways work and we go from a footpath to a, to a highway inside of our brain, what you're talking about is we would, we would love to create the same thing except in the positive versus – in the negative, you know. Yeah, that's that's right. Yeah. Huh. And so there's one example of of one of the 52 verses that, if you understand the one concept, suddenly all kinds of others fall into place. But another one is is in this idea of covenant, where uh, Genesis 15, God made a covenant with Abraham, and the, uh, understanding the construct of the covenant will help you understand not only the Abrahamic covenant, but the Noahic covenant, the covenant with Moses, the covenant with David, the covenant with Jesus. In fact, there is no, as, near, as far as I can tell, God has never had a relationship with a person or a people group outside of covenant. Mm. So if you don't understand the covenant, then you're not going to understand how God has relationships with us. Now, here, here's the very first covenant. And this is honestly a fairly new discovery for me. Well, they would, this literally the Hebrew word is karat uh, breshit, to cut a covenant, to cut a covenant, because they would take an animal, cut it in half, lay the animal out, splayed, and you walked between the animal, and that's how you signed the covenant, not in ink, but in blood, right? So 
the covenant that God gave to Abraham, you expect Abraham to cut the covenant. And he does. He is a bull, a ram, and a goat. He cut all three up, laid them side by side. But Abraham didn't pass through the covenant. Correct, right. God did. At night, he shows up in a, in a pillar of fire and passes through the covenant as if to say, Abraham, if you break this covenant, may it be to me as you have done to these. What are you talking about? How can God bleed? They'll fast forward 2,000 years and we find <laughs> out how he bled. Yeah. God cut the covenant. Mm. It's, I mean, it's, 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 it's amazing. The word of God is just amazing to me. Yeah, that's powerful. That's powerful. I go back to, I go back to John six sixty three, and I don't, I don't, I don't know what about that passage caught me so much and and spoke to me the way it did. And I've talked about it on this podcast before, that the words that I've given you are spirit and they are life. And that idea that somehow we were created in the image of God, that we have the ability to speak life into other people. That when we step yeah. into a, and you know those people who do that. Who step into a room, and all of us should be people like that. Who step into a room and speak, and it changes the the dynamic, changes the color of the room, it changes the mood of the people around us. You know, changes the energy of those who are around us. You know, and yes, you're right. God's word's powerful. Well, and that reminds me of uh, another lesson that is also in Core 52 on the Word of God. There are three passages. Almost every preacher who preaches on the Word of God is going to go to three passages that that. Uh, the word of God is it's God breathed. It's inspired. Second Timothy three sixteen, that is sharper than a two edged sword. And then the armament in uh, Ephesians chapter six, the armor of God, the offensive weapon is the sword of the word of God. Here's what's interesting. There are three words for word in the Greek. One of the words is the written word. And that's the Second Timothy passage, that the written word, the graphe, is inspired by God. When you go to Ephesians, it's, the, it's not the written word. It's actually the rhema, the spoken word. Right. And Christians believe that if they know the book, the written word, that they will have an offensive weapon against the devil. That's not true. It's the speaking of the word that gives you the offensive weapon against the devil. He, the, the, Satan is not afraid of you knowing the Bible. He's afraid of you speaking the Bible, whether that's speaking in your own, into your own life or into the life of someone else, like what you just said, walking in a room and breathing life into that room. Yeah. The, other, the other word for word is Hebrews uh, 4.11, that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. That's the word logos which you in fact recognize is the incarnation of Jesus. Yeah. And when you read the context of Hebrews 4.11, it's very clear. We are talking about Jesus, right. not, not the canon of the Bible. Yeah. And when you start putting the relationship with Jesus to the text of the Bible in a spoken form, man, Katie bar the door. We, mm -hmm. we have incredible power. Through knowing the word. But again, this is part of the reason for the project of Core 52. I want people to know the Bible well enough that they can speak it into other people's lives and have a relationship with Jesus through that. 
That's beautiful. It's super, super inspiring as well. I uh, appreciate it so much. When I spoke with Trevor DeVage uh, on the on the podcast, he was amped up. He's like, my friend Mark Moore wrote a book. Of course, <laughs> Trevor DeVage has turned up to 11 anyway, right? Yeah, that's right. And so he's like, so so I'm on there with him for like five minutes, and he's just like, what are we, like, We, me and you need a podcast. Me and you need to get ourselves, we need like a Rebel Yell podcast, me and you. <laughs> I mean, going off. And he's like, we were a test church. We were a test church. And we were able to get some of Mark's stuff from Core 52 early and then start working through it. He said, powerful, powerful stuff. It was fantastic. And that was one of the first places I'd heard of it. So it, yeah, it's fun that. To, yeah, it's fun to talk to Trevor on any topic, and especially on this, because he is one of those pastors that he he's not wanting to make people smarter. He wants to make them more shrewd, more statistically or strategically powerful to transform the community. And God knows we need it. Yeah. Yeah, he's a fun one. Well, this is a great deal. This is a great deal. So the book releases tomorrow. Where can people get it? Um, it, it in, anywhere. Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, Amazon, uh, Christian book distributors. If you if you actually go to the website, core52.org. Okay. Uh, it's Just think of it, C-O-R-E dot core52.org. Uh, if you go to the website, you will see the, all the major distribution channels. And honestly, I would just click on each one to see what the prices are and get the best price. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for letting us know that and the work uh, that you uh, that you put in to uh, to make that happen. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm uh, very optimistic that we're going to put a dent in biblical illiteracy. And again, yeah. not for the sake of us being smarter, but we have really lost Jared. And, and you know this. Our culture has lost a Christian worldview, and that impacts everything from the way we deal with environmental issues to the way we deal with uh, uh, end-of-life issues, beginning-of-life issues, the way we deal with the, the, the Me Too movement and racism. I mean, across the board, we have lost the ability to think the thoughts of God because we haven't tapped into the revelation of God in his word. I, I agree. I agree. There's a um, Stephen Mansfield. I spoke with him two weeks ago, and you know he had an encouraging word on we are we are not a post-Christian world. We are a pre-Christian world. He said we've almost turned we've almost turned all the way over. Now we're like things are things are kind of broken, and they're so broken yeah. now. Now we're ready. Like now it's now it's time. Now it's kind of a it's it's the it's the turn time. You know, flip the switch. Let's do the right thing. Let's make yeah. changes now. You know. And uh, I appreciated that encouraging word. Yeah, so thank you so much. Thank you so much. Well, let me tell you a second. Let me tell you a, uh, a little bit about what, we, what we're trying to accomplish here. Um, I'm kind of a nerd when it comes to preaching. It doesn't necessarily mean I'm a good preacher, but I'm kind of a nerd when it comes to the structure of a message and the yep. delivery of the message. And that stuff is big. It's big where you come from, where you taught. It's big where I went to school when I sat in a class with Jim Johnson or Matt Proctor, or Mark Scott, uh, or Damien Spickwright, and you listen to these guys talk about how to break this stuff down, and they just inundate you with— Oh, man, they're icons, yeah. Just Stuart and Jill Briscoe, and Will Williman, and Fred Craddock, and they just pound this stuff at you all the time. You can't help but, but, but kind of get a taste for that and think, man, maybe preaching is bigger than just me just talking about stuff. When I listen to the way you preach, you have some identifying marks um, as a preacher 
that that have always moved me and two of them two of them one is the subtlety that you will you will put something out and you leave it there and you might not even explain it too far you'll just leave it sitting there this like this awkward piece of you know um lampstand furniture that just kind of sets in the in the room and you either recognize it or you don't recognize it you will stop and you'll admire it or you'll walk straight by it and that's one of the things that i've always liked about the way you've preached i'll take you back to my favorite one and you knew i was going to bring this one up (laughs) because i bring it up about every year when i send you an email and i say mark son of a gun i'm listening to god of the desert from whenever it was 2003 i'm guessing 2002 maybe and I go back to the very end, and it's Christmas time. It's end of the semester, and you preach a message that is by far the most terrible idea as far as preaching a Christmas message. This is you even say it in the sermon. This is supposed to be a real lift. Some of you are never going to come back here. You'll never set foot in here again. Some of you, your lives are falling apart. Some of you are dealing with things that you may not ever overcome. Just this heavy message. You get to the end and you use this phrase and it crushes me every time I hear it. I just think on two levels, one, how powerful that is. And two, the genius of the phrase. It's Christmas. Remember, you're talking about being in the desert, feeling alone, wandering around by yourself, feeling like you're the only one that's there. And you close the message. And this has something to do with Christmas. Emmanuel. And I freaking lose it every time. It's just such a powerful, powerful deal. That subtlety of you finish the statement. You put it back together. You take this, wander out in the parking lot, and recognize the fact that the sermon can't be done until you realize he is with you. Emmanuel, he is with you. You know, this kind of deal. Love that, love that, love that about your preaching. So, man, I appreciate that so much. Well, I I, I think— Part of where I get that from, Jared, is I have always assumed that my audience is intelligent, Mm. that they are motivated. And I've not always been good at this, but I'm I'm trying to get better at it. Uh, For years when I preached, I wanted people to walk away going, man, he is smart. Mm. He is funny. He is biblical. And, you know, I, I, can't, I can't help that as, as part of just my fallen nature. We all have ego. We all have pride. And that actually doesn't come from my arrogance. It comes from my insecurity, to be honest sure. with you. Yeah. As, I, as I've matured a little bit, grown past that a little bit, I am far more concerned that someone walks out of the room saying, I have the capacity to know God's word. I have the capacity to improve my life and live these principles in a practical way. So I've I've never so that's one thing. The other thing is I've never put up with this false um, like I'm I'm terrible at small talk. It's almost embarrassing if you call me on the phone. uh, I'll just say. Yeah, good to talk to you. What do you need? <laughs> let's just get back. Let's just get real. Let's get the, get down to business. And I think my preaching, I hope my preaching reflects some of that where I'm not going to pull any punches. I'm not going to paint a rosy picture where it's not rosy. And the reality is the week before Christmas, students are overwhelmed. Some of them know they're 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 failing and it's like statistically it's impossible for them to pass the class no matter what they do. 
Some of them are going back to homes that are are really difficult and abusive. And to to pretend, I think that's why I just got on a tangent. I think that's why Christmas is the most depressing time for a lot of people is because everyone is painting a picture. Mm-hmm. It's the social media phenomenon. We paint a picture of our best life, but behind the thin veil, uh, people are people are hurting. And they would rather you be honestly real than flamboyantly interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm telling you, that message, God of the Desert, did you ever get that one up on your website? Uh, and not yet. I've been busy with the book right. release, but right. I, yeah, I, I sure. have it in my to-do list. I promise yeah, you. Yeah, sure. Um, just so that I can link some people up to it. Uh, I think that's just a valuable, valuable thing for people to hear. Uh, and it's, and it's, and it's great. I was, I was telling, I was telling Dave Stone about that, about that message. And he said, Jared, he said, you want to know the genius, the genius of that, of that sermon, the way it's constructed and the way it's written. He said, the genius of it is this. He said that, how long ago did you graduate? I said 2004. And he said, you've quoted me like three lines from that sermon since 2004. He said, Jerry, you talked 15 years, 15 years ago, you know, and you, you, you're holding on to these lines that you remember. And I'm like, that's true. And he said, that's the, that's the power. That is the, that's the work of the homilist, that when somebody comes in and they really begin to take words and make them make sense and put them in the right order, and it, and it sounds good, and it's theologically correct, and it sticks. It's got this adhesive to it that just sticks to your soul that you can't get rid of. So that is the work of a preacher. That's exactly what a preacher's work is. And it was, great. it was a great conversation, so I do appreciate that. Well, thank you. Well, let me ask you a question. I, I know this is supposed to go the other way, but the more I preach, the more I realize I preach sentences more than sermons. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you know what sentences are going to stick. Sometimes it's just trial and error. You throw stuff on the wall and see what see what sticks. But how do you think through you've got a whole sermon which has a structure, it has a story, it has a flow, it has a hopefully a main point that you drive that point home. But in, in the in the reality of life there are sentences or statements that stick to people's souls. Mm-hmm. How do you measure or predict what those sticky statements are going to be? And how do you add more of those into a message? Mm. Um, the, the first part of the question, how do you, how do you gauge that? I mean, I think, I think that has a lot to do with number one, you can only filter that through yourself. What sticks to you? And assuming that we are all the same on some level, if it sticks to me and it has some adhesive to me, uh, I'm going to assume it has some adhesive to you. Uh, that's that's part of it. I think the other part, when you're when you're a minister, I think it's very very difficult. Now, now this is going to I'm going to kind of go off on a, a little bit of a tangent. I think it's very very difficult for a preacher whose only job is to preach during the week, and that's all they do. They spend no time with congregation. They spend no time in the in the gutter with people. They're not walking through. They're not walking through difficult things in other people's lives. Their sole responsibility is to walk from the green room to the stage. It's going to be really, really hard for them, I think, to identify some of those 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 sentences that are going to really stick to the soul. Mm-hmm. Because if you haven't been in there, if you haven't heard the guys talk about, you know, um, the drug addiction or the porn addiction, or 
you know, the, the pain of, of loneliness, a full grown tattooed sleeved man saying, I have a loneliness inside of me that I cannot escape. If you haven't been able to experience some of this stuff, I think it's going to be really hard to, could be really hard to produce more of that. You know, I think, yeah. I mean, you have an interaction with somebody and it's tragic. You're in a hospital with somebody who's, who's losing a baby or, or they have cancer. There's some, there's some gravity to that conversation into that, into that time together that sticks to you will not go away. I mean, it just will not go away. And from that, I think it creates these reservoirs that we're able to reach inside and pull out these things and say, I remember this, or I remember the moment that my dad looked at me and he said, I am so proud of you because it was a one in a million thing that he would ever say that, you know, these things that are just, but I think it has a lot to do with our community. I think it has a whole lot to do with our community. Uh, how do we get more of those? Um, that's a good question. That's a good question. I don't, I don't know how we put. I don't know how we put more of those uh, into a sermon. What, what would you say? Well, I, I know how it doesn't work. Um, mm. And you and I both grew up with three-point alliterative outlines and hearing that you know it rhymed and so it was clever. I don't remember any three-point alliterative outline. No, no, maybe one, but you just you just don't. It really is more of those tweetable phrases. But the problem the problem that I'm having, Jared, is. I, I'm getting clever phrases, and we've got to. When we do sermons here at, at CCV, it really is a communal project. So, for example, um, I just preached a sermon yesterday, and it, it the power of the sermon was in one story that came out of a woman's life who emailed me. I didn't even know her. She emailed me her story. I then called her. And got more of the details, and it turned out to be this amazing, amazing story. So, as I'm listening to you uh, talk about going from the green room to the stage, back to the green room, in some ways, the larger your church is, or the larger your church becomes, the less percentage of your people you have interaction with. But if you can have an antenna up for emails or conversations around a water cooler, or even find other people in your staff who are having powerful interactions. If you include some of your other pastoral staff into the sermon writing process, suddenly your reservoir for those powerful sermons or powerful stories becomes a lot deeper and a lot broader. And I think out of the story can arise a phrase that actually means something to people. Are you or someone you know wanting to make a difference with your life, but you're not sure where to start? At Ozark Christian College in Joplin, Missouri, they help students discover the kingdom assignment that God has for them and then train them to carry it out. Ozark prepares students for all kinds of Christian service, biblical communication, biblical justice, youth and children's ministry, counseling, missions, organizational leadership, worship and creative arts, and much more. Ozark's close community, Bible foundation, and commitment to service prepare students to take the gospel to every corner of the globe as ambassadors for Christ. And Ozark's affordable tuition offers a quality private Christian education at a public university price. Ozark Christian College, your mission is out there. Your training starts here. Yeah. There's a, uh, as, a as, I've, as I've done more interviews with, with guys from larger churches, uh, that's one of the things I keep thinking through, you know, how did, how does a guy like this, you know, have the time to have these kind of conversations, you know, on a one-on-one level? I mean, it becomes a very, 
Because, you know, when you're in a rural church, a small church, you know, I'm in a small church in Iola, Kansas, you know, population yeah. of population of Iola is, you know, 5,000 at best. Um, and, you know, where we are as far as the church goes, you're talking anywhere from 145 to 175 people, you know? Yeah. Well, here, here's one of the other differences that it, when you have a when you have a larger church, you obviously have to have a larger pool of impressive stories. But one of the things that we found, Jared, is when we tell a story, you know, some some guy, you know, jumped out of a helicopter and got shot out by the minister, you know, some wild story. Sure. Everybody is on the edge of their seat listening to the story. But because it is so far out of their own experience, they drop it pretty quickly. Mm. In other words, it's like going to a movie. Movie doesn't change your life. Right. We have given preference for well, – there's a couple of things that might surprise people watching the podcast. Uh, Christ Church of the Valley is the, the one of the largest churches in the country. We have given preference to not sermons that are a 10. Like we're, we're not we're not the best preachers around, but we want to do a seven or an eight every single week. Because people will invite their friends to your church, mm. not because it's a 10, but because it's consistently good. If you have one 10, one six, one eight, one four, another 10 and then a seven. If I bring a friend one week and it's a big win, I bring it back the next week and it's not. It's the inconsistency that makes people cautious about inviting a friend. The other thing we do with stories is we don't tell radical stories. We tell stories that the most people can relate to. So some dude that, you know, is a, is a family guy. He's got a couple of kids, uh, kind of a rough background, and he's really struggling with you pick a topic, tithing or pornography or uh, getting to work on time, whatever it is, the more people that go, I know what he feels like, mm -hmm. the longer the shelf life <clears throat> of the impact of that illustration. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. The consistency is a uh, that's a that's a new that's a new goal for me on over the last few years of, hey, you know what, fella, you know, crushing one out at every at bat. You know, not going to happen. You're not going to put it in the bay. You're not going to put yeah. it in the bay every time you step into the batter's box, you know. Um, but, man, get a stand-up double, would you? Would you, would you get a stand-up yeah. double? You know, that, that, might be a good, that might be a good place to start, you know. Yeah, or get on base. <laughs> right. Yeah. Nobody scores who doesn't get on base. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. And the other thing, and, and probably a lot of the audience, if, if you've got people watching this who aren't preachers, they have no way of knowing this. When you preach a 10, your excitement lasts about 15 minutes because you walk off stage and, and then you get in the car and you're heading to lunch and you go, holy crap, I've got to do that again. Yep. You're only as good as your last sermon. Yep. Yep. And so if you what, what, every once in a while, I'll, I'll get up in a, in a nine. And then the next week, I'm like, oh, man, what, what did I just do to myself? Right. You've raised an expectation of this phenomenal story or this emotional moment. Or, do, you think do, you think, do you think that's a part of – do you think that's a part of why so many, so many preachers begin to just really um, 
dig and and maybe even plagiarize and maybe even steal stories from other places that that are not that are not personal stories and they begin to add more gimmicks and gags to their because they've raised that level once and they don't know how to return to that well yeah and i i I think that's that's part of it i think another part of it is we have a very difficult time getting out of our own way and when i stand on stage there's a couple things that i keep trying to tell myself one is every time i stand on stage that is not my gift to god that's god's gift to me Uh. because the reality is there are a hundred people in our congregation that could do a better job at preaching than I could. So at the point where I go, boy, aren't I God's gift to the, to the platform? Uh, no, it's God's gift to you. So you want to be faithful mm. rather than being, um, I don't know, faithful that you are, you know, you are fated to this grandeur of God. That's one thing I, that I try to, get out of the way. The other thing is I used to talk about, you know, just have an audience of one when you preach. If that were possible, I would go for it. It's just not possible. So rather what I've done is tried to get an audience of about five, five men and women whose opinions matter to me. Mm. And if they say it's a good sermon, then I'm satisfied. If they're disappointed, I don't care who else compliments me. Because the larger your audience, the more compliments you are going to get. And one of the things that just kills a lot of people's uh, preacher's creativity and innovation is when they listen to the wrong people telling them it was a good sermon. So, for example, our congregation, we don't go for the emotional a lot. We're more of the business guy, the... um, the, the success to significance is a common phrase you'll hear around here. So I want the successful guy that wants to move to significance. If you preach an emotional sermon, the wrong people will compliment you. It's the emotional. And here's the way they compliment you. Oh, pastor, that, that was the best sermon I've ever heard in my life. Which I'll tell you what that means. That was the last sermon you ever heard in your life. Because like, sometimes people say that to me and it's like, Either you are really like narrow uh, or you don't know what a good sermon is. Right. The, the target audience for us, that, that business executive, male or female, here's the way they compliment you. If they compliment you, it'll be this. Yeah. That was, that was really significant. <laughs> right. And, and yeah. Yeah. so yeah. you just, you have to really measure where you get your affirmation from. Otherwise, you do get drawn into the bigger story, the brighter lights, the flashier um, illustration. Yeah, that's uh, when it, when I think of when I think of the, the the compliments that come and the comments that people make as far as preaching. Uh, one of my responses is, my wife will say, "Oh, I talked to so and so the other day, and you know, she said or he said that was such a great sermon." And one of the first thoughts that crosses my mind is like. How would he know? <laughs> How would yeah. he? What did he go to school? Did he go to school for it? Does he have any idea how it's how it's structured? Or if I even yeah. executed the text correctly, does he? Would he? Would he, have, he wouldn't know. That guy wouldn't know. Well, I'm glad. It, I'm glad for his listening. It was somewhat appealing to his auditory senses. But as far as it goes, with it being a good sermon, eh? I'm gonna have to let that one go. I'm gonna have to let that one go a little bit. 
Well, and it might have been a good sermon for him because it impacted his life where he is. And I, look, you and I both love the artistry of yeah. homiletics. Right. And there, there are some sermons that I preach and I just go, dang, that was good. Yeah. Like that was good. But if it doesn't impact someone's life, what does it matter? Now, right. I think you can do both. And I think I want to be artistic because, and I want to be theologically accurate, and I want my presentation to be smooth and, and all of that. But the bottom line, the, the homilist is, is presenting a homily, a message from God to a congregation to move them from where they are to where they need to be. As shepherds, what do we do? We take people to green pastures. We lay them down beside quiet waters. And if we're not doing that, it really doesn't matter how fancy our shepherding cloak is or how many jewels are on our shepherd's staff. If it doesn't lead people, it's worthless. Yeah. What are uh, what are some of the pitfalls that you see with with preachers and leaders, um, not specific uh, preachers and leaders, but specific pitfalls? Um, that, you, that you see as as guys move through ministry or gals move through ministry? What are some of the things you see? Uh, I, can, I can only speak for myself without being judgmental of others. One of the dangers that, that I've had to, to really watch is trying to be more, and I'm just going to use a bad word here, more popular outside the church than I am inside the church. The grass is always greener on the other side, old adage. And when you start playing to, like, what does another pastor think about my preaching? Mm. What is it? You become a guest speaker and you speak in another church. How did they respond? And there's always a bigger stage and always a bigger audience somewhere else. But God's called you here. And a lot of pastors, particularly as their church grows, because their church grows, they're invited to go speak somewhere else. But the speaking somewhere else makes them feel good, but it takes them away from their primary obligation. I'll tell you what, why, I'm, why I'm starting with that, Jared. Uh, there was a time in my teaching career where I was getting uh, more, more recognition and the, the larger stages are always farther away from home. And it was Father's Day, uh, and my kids, and I, I'm, not, I'm not a great, I was a good father. I was not a great father. And part of that has to do with my own upbringing and my own uh, aggressive career building. But at Father's Day, my kids got me a card that said, world's greatest dad. Hmm. That's just not true. And so as I looked at the card, I was feeling a little bit guilty because I've been traveling so much and preaching so much, trying to get the larger stage and the larger recognition. And then it struck me, it could not be more true for two kids in the world. I am the world's greatest dad. And if another man uh, stole my wife away, he could never replace me as father. Mm -hmm. The only thing I'm ever going to be best at is the husband of one wife and the father of two kids. I will never be the greatest preacher. I'll never be the greatest scholar. So when the lure of a bigger stage takes you away from your family, from your church, you are opting 
to be great in an area that you will never be greatest at. And I think that's a, a sad loss. Yeah. That's a hard balance. It's a hard balance, though. You know, when you carry your own baggage, one of the things we say around here is as parents, oftentimes we try to parent our issues out of our kids. They don't even have our issues, but we're going <laughs> to go ahead and parent the loneliness out of those kids. We're going to parent the, you know, the addiction out of those kids because that's where I want. I got to watch this kid. He's sneaky. He's not sneaky. I'm sneaky. <laughs> I want to make sure yeah. I keep my eye on that, you know, uh, and I think sometimes that same that same thing happens that. You know, we begin to chase after our own our own thing and learn the balance between the two. How many preachers' kids do you know that have gone completely off the rails? And there's one reason why. And most of them have the same reason why. You know, the church yeah. was number one. My family was number two. Yeah. So there's a, there's a second thing, and I, I learned this early on in my ministry. And I don't know if you know this, Jared, but my first church was uh, Church of Sixty. It was in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, we over the over the years we grew it to 130. So I was very pleased with that growth. But no, nobody's going to be like knocking on your door to speak right. at the North American from uh, uh, from that church at my age for sure. But I started to do something um, as a young preacher. I was preaching to people who weren't in the room. That is, I came out of Ozark Christian College. My mentors were Seth Wilson and Kenny Bowles and Wilbur Fields and Lynn Gardner and Mark Scott. I was preaching for them, and they weren't even there. I started a practice. I don't know why I thought to even do this, but I went through the congregation, and I literally sat in Jesse Goode's pew. He sat in the same place every week, and I just prayed for he and his wife. And then I moved over and I sat where where Vernon and Irene sat and I, I prayed through their family. And then I went clear to the back and uh, Zutella Perkle, she sat on the very uh, the aisle of the very last row. Zutella Perkle had 36 years of perfect attendance pins and she had a yeah, she had a, a case made and she hung all her pins in a case in the lobby of the church. It was awesome. And okay. would never let anybody sit in her chair. And even at her funeral, part of the funeral uh, arrangements were to have two dozen, I think there were yellow roses, put in her seat so that no one could sit in her seat, even at her funeral. So I just, I just sat in the seats. I prayed for the people. And it was, I want to say miraculous, maybe the right word is mystical. When I would get up on stage then, as I'm preaching, I would hear the Holy Spirit speak to me about that mm. person in that seat. And it, I don't know that I've ever done anything that improved my preaching more. <laughs> that's a good. That's good. I mean, that's. I've, I've heard people say, go set in the audience. <clears throat> I've heard people say. Pray for your congregation. Um, it's a great description. That's a great practice. Why didn't more people talk about? Why don't, why don't more people talk about that? Why are you wasting? Why are you wasting yeah. your time writing? Why are you wasting your time writing <laughs> Core Fifty Two when you should have been <laughs> writing? You should have been writing this. I'm well, just... because if I wrote a preaching uh, book, it would be a pamphlet and not a book. That's the honest <laughs> truth. 
I'll be honest. Um, when I heard Core 52, I thought, well, Mark Moore has done exactly what I thought he would do. He's put out a workout program. That's exactly what yes. he does. <laughs> no, it's it, I totally <clears throat> think of it like that. So yeah. we're gonna we're gonna see if we can't get some people spiritually fit in God's word. That's awesome. That's a great that's a great setup. That's a great setup. Hey, we're gonna this this, this could go on forever. This could go on forever, and we're we're already coming up to uh, already coming up to the hour. Um, let me let me put let me put a couple of these out here. I, I need some I need some info. Funniest passage in the Bible to you. One that makes you laugh. Ooh. Um, do, do you remember when Jesus healed the man with dropsy? He's in a synagogue. This guy's got dropsy. Dropsy is a disease of retention of fluid in the lower abdomen and around the ankles. Okay. I don't know how he healed him. There's one of two possibilities I can think of. Either he just said, let my people go, and the water just all over the floor, or he just had the water evaporate and the guy like the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man just, you know, either way, I think it's hilarious. I want to be there. That's it's the it's a word picture. It's a word yeah, picture. Yeah, that's the one. That's good. Well, the, the other one is when he, when he asked the lame guy at the pool, do you want to get well? <laughs> I like that one. And he doesn't, he doesn't even answer him. Like what? <laughs> Cause I know that person. And the yeah. answer is no, I no. don't want to get no. well. I yeah. want to keep complaining about how yeah. bad my life is. Yeah. No, of course I know. Of course I don't want to get well. I mean, the, I'd rather, I'd rather just sit and just moan about what's going on in my, in my life. I'm going to put it on Facebook later. If, if yeah, you heal me, right. I'll have nothing for my, for my social media status, you know? The way you preach, gifts, talents, abilities, things that you do that you've noticed. This is your this is your groove. This is what you do well. What are those yeah. things? Well, probably uh, the the only thing that I would say that I'm really good at is taking complex theological ideas and putting them in an accessible form. So th- I've often said I'm not the greatest scholar. I'm not the greatest preacher. I'm a pretty unique combination of the two. So the danger for me, I mean, that does have the advantage of people think I'm interesting, usually. It has the advantage of people walking away going, huh, never saw it that way before, which is, that's pretty helpful because not only for for Christians who have heard everything, you know, it's a way of grabbing your interest and bringing you back again to this space of, isn't God great. Isn't the Bible uh, an amazing piece of literature? For the non-Christian, I think it also, I have a way of taking all the Christianese out of the message and making it relevant, especially to those who have a a thinking mind. It doesn't mean other people aren't intelligent, but some people are more driven by the uh, cognitive rather than the emotive. Yeah, I would definitely say that that's that's true for that's true for you and your preaching. It is, it is a higher shelf than than a lot of people would would preach at. Um, yeah. which is interesting. Honestly, um, my uh, my appreciation for your preaching because you are truly, honestly, outside of outside of on a completely different level than most of the guys that I appreciate. I appreciate the emotive. Mm. I appreciate the creative. Yeah. I appreciate, yeah. but I but I do have that that internal nerd that really yeah. loves when 
somebody breaks out, you know, the old McGarvey uh, and starts talking about the soil, you know, I mean, that gets me that gets me a little amped, too. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of curious in my own. And maybe it is just the people who tend to approach me. But uh, at our church, we're trying to reach the dude, just like mm. most dudes don't read most. And so we perceive men because they don't read. They don't usually sit there and write notes as less intellectual. Mm. That's not true. I found guys that are like bodybuilders and, you know, they're into, you know, how many, how many guns they own or how, you know, how many hours they spend at the gym. They're still fascinated and have a need that the person they're listening to actually knows their stuff, history, sociology, a, a little bit of the language background. Yeah. Being a preacher kind of has a, uh, kind of has a tough thing. kind of has a tough, uh, a burden placed on it because when you're shotgunning an audience, you kind of have to kind of have to have your stuff straightened out because you could step into a realm surface level and somebody in there who is a biochemist and is looking at you and going, oh. actually, <laughs> yeah. So I walked out of church the other day and this guy he he looked a little nerdy. Just honestly, sure. he's wearing a NASA shirt. <laughs> so I thought maybe he'd come from Comic Con or something. So I right. said, so uh, what do you like work for NASA? He goes, yeah, I do. <laughs> and, and I'm thinking, oh, crap, I stepped in it now. So I'm trying to justify myself. because He could have been, you know, a janitor. So right. uh, I said, what do you do? And he goes, I'm an engineer on the Orion Project. <laughs> okay, I had to look up the Orion Project. I, this guy it's could beautiful. run circles around me. Yeah, well, it's beautiful. Well, it's like in rural, in rural area. You know, I didn't grow up the son of a farmer. If I use a farmer illustration... A little out of whack. <laughs> Somebody's gonna line me out on, hey fella, that's not what a combine does, you know. I yeah. Mean, real quick. Or getting back to McGarvey's soils. <laughs> right. Exactly. Which I I I love some of that, but man, there's some of those things you better be you better have a little depth to you in some of those areas, you know. Yeah. yeah. Better have a little depth to you. Um, how has your preaching changed through the years as you've developed? I mean, individually, personally, how has it changed? Well, I'll tell you, Jared, the, the biggest change for me, um, and ev every year I'm trying to improve in one or two areas. This year, I'm going to try to smile more and pause longer. <laughs> I'm practicing. Wow. Uh, last year, the probably the biggest change for me is I'm much more uh, self, I have much more self-disclosure now. And again, it goes back to my own insecurities. I made myself the hero of all my stories. Mm. Uh, and even if that's true, it's not helpful. People care more about relating to someone than looking up to them. So the more I laugh at myself, the more people like me. It's like I, if I can just like totally insult myself or laugh at myself or even confess sin, it's just it's ramped up people's ability to hear the word through me. Yeah, it's viability, isn't it? I mean, it's the yeah. I mean, how much people are just going to just truly buy in? Like, if this guy can, this guy can buy. If this guy can just take his piece of it and his brokenness and put it in front, like, yeah, here's me as a guy. Okay, now we can talk. Now yeah, we can. That's talk. right. Exactly yeah. right. Well, as far as the smiling and the pausing, uh, I haven't had Joel Osteen on here yet. But if we happen to get him on here. <laughs> 
um, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll ask him, we'll ask him some of those questions. How do you, how do you do such a thing? So it might be, might be good. So. Well, I was just, I, I'm just reading a, a couple of books, both ob- uh, oddly by FBI agents. The one is never split the difference, uh, how to broker good deals. And the other is the like factor. And here's a guy that you think you're reading a book by Vincent Peale, how to win friends and influence people. Right, right. No, he was, he was a counter terrorist expert. Yeah. And he's I, going, I'm familiar. I'm familiar with the first book. Uh, yeah. I forgot his name though. Uh, well, I have it. I have it right back here. Yeah. It is uh, Chris Voss. Chris Voss. Right. Chris Voss. But in this other book, I'm reading the like factor, just how important smiling is and how you, we mirror people's images. I'm a very intense person. So I always come across angrier than I actually am. So the other problem I have is I, I think I'm hilarious. Right. I mean, so I got to tell you this, that I actually use this and we can here at CCV. You remember when Paul took Titus down to Jerusalem and they're going to the Jerusalem council, which is, it's a debate on whether Gentiles need to be circumcised. Right. Titus is a Gentile. He's not circumcised. Hello. He is the test case. Right. So if Paul loses the debate, snip, snip. So from from the, the stage, I said, you know, Titus, you know, Titus had to ask Paul several times, like, scale of one to 10, how confident are you that you're going to win this thing? Because <laughs> here it is. He had more skin in the game than anybody else. <laughs> love it. Love it. So, but the thing with my with my jokes is, and I've noticed on video, I don't laugh at my own jokes. I think that makes me funnier in a personal conversation. But from the stage, uh, it's it's harder for me to come across fun. I mean, they think I'm clever, but they don't get that emotional release unless I give them permission Agreed. to emotionally release. So laughing and smiling are really more theologically important than we give them credit for. It's endearing. It's endearing when somebody giggles at their own at their own stuff. It's endearing. Yeah. You watch a you watch a, com- a comedian do it. It's endearing. You know, I mean, you you kind of fall into that. Like this guy, like when he was writing this, he thought this is funny. Like it gets him. It's yeah. going to get me. You know, that's good. That's good. Um, hey, real quick. If you had a piece of advice or encouragement to give other preachers who are going to sit down, listen to this podcast. Um they're in ministry. They're not sure they're making a difference. Um, they're struggling. Maybe they're in a rural church. Uh, what's your What's your encouragement yeah. to give these guys? Well, I, I'd rattle off about five or six things uh, really quickly. Uh, don't do it alone. Mm. One of the great advantages that young preachers have that older preachers didn't is they tend to write in community, live in community, social media in community. So having a group of guys that are distant from you because of social media, uh, you know, text, phone calls, just be bros, man. Find a team of people that you can work with. That's one. And not only uh, for the emotional side, but even the professional side. You don't want to steal other people's material. But I have found that writing in community makes for a better product at the end uh, and it, a, a better process in the middle. Mm. The other thing I would say is um, do, w- there was a time when I felt all alone. 
when I was that young pastor in San Antonio and small church, and am I making a difference? Like I get all those feelings. I to- I totally do. You're not in this for recognition. Mm. God called you, and you you evaluate your job not based upon people's responses, but on your carrying out the commission that God gave you. You know when you're being lazy. You know when you're working hard. You know when you have a pure heart. You know when you're um, getting, getting a little squirrely around the edges of your self-esteem. If you are right with God, you will eventually be right with others. And one of the rules that I'm trying to learn in my own life is if you help enough other people get what they need, you will always have what you want. Uh, that's so so focus on other people, not on, not on yourself. It's great advice, Mark. Great advice. I appreciate it so much. Thank you for uh, joining me on this and thank you for your time. And uh, I'm looking forward to uh, getting into Core 52 and getting the church into Core 52 and pushing this thing all the way through. I think it'll be a really good deal. And we'll uh, we'll jump on it when we do. I'll give you an update on how it goes. Yeah. Hey, can I answer one more question? I wish you would. It's not one that you ask uh, on the podcast, but you you texted me and said, hey, man, you look like you're in really good shape. And so what's your secret? And here's my here's my secret. I always buy my shirts one t- one size too small. So medium is it's your what thing. we it's what we call an extra medium. So it's beautiful. Hey, do me one favor, would you? Yeah. If you if you bump into Mark Driscoll, tell him I'm coming for him. I've sent him multiple messages. Stop avoiding me. I'm coming for him. I'm trying to get him on the podcast. So hey. He actually, he and I are actually friends, and I was I uh, popped into his church on Father's Day, so I'll send him a text. And, I uh, wish you would. The bearded wonder. That's right. Wonders <laughs> what he's thinking. Right, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks for being on the homeless. And thank you for listening to the Homeless Podcast. If you have not been over to the YouTube channel, you may want to check that out. Also, the website www.thehomelist.com theme music is provided by Ina Bluma, my boy Caleb Paxton, laying down some fantastic tracks for me. Appreciate you. You can go check them out. You can find them on Facebook as well. And check out, they've got a new album coming out soon. So you're going to want to, uh, you're going to want to check that out. Ina Bluma. All right. Until next time. See ya.